The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jason Kelly. He is the author of a new book called The Neatest Little Guide to Stock Market Investing. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks, Jordan. It's great to be here. Start with a little bit of your background and uh, what you did leading up to uh, writing this book. Sure. I first started writing about uh, complex material at the IBM Silicon Valley Lab years ago, and that really honed my my abilities to take these complex topics and, and turn them into something informative and maybe even interesting to read. That was the hope. And I I realized years into that job that as as much as I'd learned about tech writing and as, as good as it had been to me, my my true love and interest lay in the stock market, and I wanted to to do for, for investment readers the same thing I'd done for computer readers, which was to just sort of open their eyes to what it seemed like an arcane, maybe un- unreachable topic over the years. And so I just started practicing by writing about mutual funds. Uh, there were no ETFs at that time, but I was writing about mutual funds because I thought it was the easiest way for people to get started. And then as I got better about writing about it, my audience became more sophisticated. I moved on to individual stocks and then just kept going through various topics. But the most popular book by far has been this one we're talking about today, The Neatest Little Guide to Stock Market Investing, which is now in its fifth edition. And I think the reason it does well is it, it takes people from, from zero to just about everything they need to know to get through life in the stock market. The reason for that is my approach has been not not to present uh, the most the most complex and and possibly effective strategies, but the ones that that we know work pretty well, and then ordinary people can run practically from their kitchen tables. Because I think, frankly, Jordan, most people don't want to become hedge fund traders part time. They really just want to reach their basic financial goals in life, like retiring or sending a child to college, and and that's how most of them are using the stock market. So with that perspective in mind, I, I put together in, in this one. Book Look, everything that, that I think they'll need to do that on their own. Now, your first, when was your first edition of this book? The first one was 1998. Wow. So, so some of the things you're saying have pretty, pretty much stayed the same. But what has changed, particularly in the last few years since your last edition of the book? Uh, this is now a 2013 edition. What has changed in recent years over previous versions? You bet. That's a great question. Um, actually, the the long history of the book, and and if you think about it carefully, the the amazing timeline that this book has existed in has has really made it crystal clear what is timeless advice and what does change with the news headlines. I mean, think about it. From from the late '90s up until now, we've had 
two of the biggest bear market peaks. We had the dot-com peak at the end of the 90s. Then we had then we had the crash, so one of the biggest bear markets ever. Then we had the housing bubble, one of the biggest bulls ever. And then we had another bear market crash of, of epic proportions we're still recovering from. So we had two major bull markets and two major bear markets in that time frame. And so things that don't work really got flushed out in a hurry during that decade. And it's specific to your question, the last few years, the update from the 2010 edition has, has happened entirely in the, the, the context of recovering from the credit crash, the, the Lehman shock. And so what we've seen mostly is, is people vindicated who were saying that we, we will recover from this too, that yes, it's big, and yes, it is a financial crisis specifically, not, not something brought on by uh, you know, a tech bubble or something like that, but, but it actually hit the banking system, which is the heart of the stock market. And so a lot of people are worried that we're not coming back from this one. We've lost a generation. There was a heated debate in 2008, the end of 2008 and 2009, about whether we'd see, uh, you may remember, the discussion of V-shaped recoveries or U-shaped recoveries or no recoveries. There was quite a debate for a while there. And the bulls have been vindicated. People that were advising buying into those lows, you know, of course, the low came in March 2009. Few caught that. But just the spirit of buying into cheap prices has really paid off. And so what, I, what I've done in this, this most recent edition is, is look at why, what we could have seen in 2008, 2009, that, that could have given us confidence to keep investing. Because the main mistake people have made in the last four or five years was not buying low prices. It, it wasn't, it wasn't owning too much into the, into the drop. It was, it was puking at the bottom or not entering at this, this probably lifetime low opportunity we had. So the book has been looking back at that, at which, which time techniques worked, and, and they're not easy to get. I don't make any promises of magic bullets. I mean, timing is tricky, tricky. So what I like to look at instead is which strategies that provide signals, um, specifically this value cost averaging plan I love, which I can talk more about if you'd like, that was telling people, buy this quarter, buy this quarter, buy this quarter, during those, those, those bottom parts of the market, and then in, in different dips along the way, too. I think it's really helpful for people to know those kinds of strategies in times like this, in all times, but specifically, like you said, the most recent years, because people have been on the sidelines afraid as the market has, has doubled, and that's not good. And so this edition of the book looks at ways to not let that happen. Let's talk a little bit about market psychology. I mean, when people took a big hit, and particularly in their 401ks and mutual funds in 2008, early 2009, uh, you know, they had to work long and they couldn't afford to retire. It just took a major psychological hit on people. My understanding is that it's still out there. Here we are, you know, four years later, and uh, there's still been mostly negative outflows out of mutual funds. Uh, people are very, very cautious about stocks, even though they've gone up dramatically. What is it about the psychology that doesn't change when the environment uh, does change so dramatically and gets more positive? My view is that because 
most people get all their information from the media instead of directly from the market itself. And and the media, which is you and me right now, let's let's not make this an us and them thing, but just we. When we when we start talking publicly about the market, we get emotional. We are emotional, and it scares people. I mean, especially if if their money is riding on something important like retirement or or education or, or new home or something. I mean, the prospect of that evaporating in front of them, of, of course, keeps people uh, petrified, you know, awake at night, whatever the situation. Um, my my opinion is that that's never going to change. I, I can't write the book that says, here's how to be bolder than everybody else on the planet in March 2009 when, when we have knuckle-whitening headlines in every financial newspaper and people almost breaking down on TV, don't worry, you'll be the one person who's confident enough to do this. I don't believe, I don't believe I'm that person, and I don't believe any of the famous gurus that people see on CNBC are, are those people. None of us can do it. And that's why what I want to look at are, are strategies that provide people with signals that are uh, apart from that emotion. And my thought is, look, if, if in a time like, like the fourth quarter of 2008 and the first quarter of 2009, that six-month period there, which was the super premium best time to have been moving money into stocks, but it was also the maximum fear we've ever seen. We've seen fear gauges absolutely top out. They'll probably be the highest we've seen in our lifetime. So it's easy now to say, ha, huh, that was a great time to buy. Why weren't you guys doing that? Because nobody was doing that. Nobody was doing that. Everybody thought, this is it. This is the great reset button. And yet, and yet, through that extremely emotional time when nobody wanted to get anywhere near stocks, these plans that have been around for decades, that have seen everything, you know, the oil crunch, that this war, that war, every single headline you can imagine, were doing their job through all of it. They were saying prices are at a point that you should buy. You should buy. You should buy. They gave those signals every week, every month, each each of those two quarters. They gave out those signals, telling people to buy. And people just kept saying that the system is broken. These 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 ideas are broken. And that view won out. What I would like to point out for people, even though we'll probably never see that again, but but who knows, right? Who knows? Look at where we're going with debt and fiscal policy in the country. Who knows what we'll get? The point is that even in those worst of times when we were at our maximum level of fear regarding stocks, these plans did their job, and they were right. They were right. And if they were right during those those face-peeling headline weeks, then they're going to be right through just about anything that happens in our lifetime, and we should listen to them. And I would say to, to people listening now or reading, reading my book that if nothing else, just devote some of your money to these plans that work. I mean, go ahead and try to beat everybody else and think you're smarter than everybody else, and maybe you are. But I'm not, and most of the pros I know are not, and the best people in this business I know admit that they are not. So keep that in mind when you assume that you are one of the best out there. And use these automated tools that were correct when almost all of us talking about this fearful market were wrong. That's what I would say about about the emotional side, Jordan, is that we're never going to master it, and therefore we have to look carefully at tools that will help us during our times of not being able to master it. Now, this is particularly relevant right now because we have uh, looming in front of us this kind of triple cliff, the debt ceiling debate, uh, the sequester debate, and the continuing resolution debate in the United States anyway, uh, where if there is no compromise on these things, 
we will default on national debt. The government will shut down. All kinds of bad things will happen. People think the markets will crash. So how, how is what you're saying specifically relevant in the current circumstance when we have right in front of us a potential train wreck about to happen? You bet. So here's how to use these ideas at times like this. You look at the prices. You, you forget about the headlines. We've been dealing with fiscal problems forever. I remember back when I was in college and everybody was freaking out that our debt was over a trillion dollars. And I remember when we hit five trillion dollars and people were saying, this is it. You better stay out of stocks. And you know what? That was before the whole dot-com boom. So while I, I completely agree that we have a, a fiscal nightmare brewing in this country and, and the balance sheet in America is, is just shot. And same where I am now. I'm talking to you from Japan. It's even worse. I'm standing in the land of the worst balance sheet on earth. So I'm well aware of these problems, but I'm also well aware that they can go on forever. And the thing that makes it so hard to predict and game and understand when we're really going to hit the wall is that they can keep making more money. And even recently, this, this inane talk of a $1 trillion coin, which I, I thought was just a joke, something from The Onion or, or some, you know, just cute little attention-getting headline, but it became a serious consideration of a way to get around the debt ceiling. And, I mean, you know you're going into Goofyville when we're talking about minting $1 trillion coins. So I, I'm granting up front, that, Jordan, that these fiscal concerns are crazy and could have enormous impact on the market. Yet, I also know that over the last two decades, They've been there through the entire time. They were irrelevant to the dot-com boom, which was such a moneymaker, irrelevant to the bust, irrelevant to the housing boom, you know, and now irrelevant to what happened after that. So I hope we can get this fixed. I doubt we will. I don't see anybody with the true leadership we need in order to take this bull by the horns. So what investors need to do is put aside the opinion on the matter and look at the numbers, look at the stock performance. And, for example, what the plan I'm talking about, which is this um, simple signal plan that, that tries to well, uses a 3% quarterly benchmark, okay? And what that plan said last summer was it was time to buy. So it was time to buy. That was a very good time during the summer the summer lows, the beginning of summer and into the middle of summer before we got a nice run-up. The plan took some profit at the end of the third quarter, and it just took profit earlier this month. Is that perfect timing? No, because actually the market did really well through the first phase of this fiscal fear, and that, that kind of backs up what I'm talking about right now, that, that the first fiscal cliff created quite a bit of fear right after the election as well, that, my gosh, it looks like we might actually go over this thing, and the market sold off in the, the, the second half of November there, but then it did really well. So the plan's idea to sell some profit, you know, to take 10% out and at the end of the third quarter was not perfect timing because even though it was a much higher point than the November lows that it sold off to during the fiscal cliff fear phase, in December that fear evaporated. Everybody knew that they were just playing games in Washington and that we'd get some sort of can-kick fix. Not a real solution, of course. We'd never get those, but we'd get a postponement that would allow the markets to continue. And we did get exactly that. So the market ended up rising just a little bit, just a little bit beyond where the plan sold at the end of the third quarter. And that's why the plan said, you know what, sell again. We're above okay. our 3% growth target, sell again. And that's what I love about this approach. It, it locks in, in, in the way that I use it, it locks in 3% per quarter. And that's all it looks at at the end of the quarter. Did you make your 3% mark or not? If not, then buy the lower prices up to your growth target. If so, sell down. So 
That's what I'm saying. It skims off the excess profit at the end of each quarter, if there is any, and that's what it just said to do earlier this month. So that's my answer, Jordan, um, that this, this plan that I've been talking about is saying to take profits as we get them, and, and I've been doing it. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman with the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jason Kelly. Uh, he's just come out with a 2013 edition of the neatest little guide to stock market investing. We'll be back after this. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. The business community's first choice in internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jason Kelly. Uh, he's the author of the latest edition of The Neatest Little Guide to Stock Market Investing. Welcome back to the show, Jason. Thank you, Jordan. So one of your main strategies that you talk about is what you call the value averaging plan for steady growth. In simple terms, and you obviously go into it in more detail in the book, explain how that strategy works. You bet. This this plan is an improvement on the, the way that most people invest on a regular basis, which is dollar cost averaging or, or DCA. And that's just simply sending in more money at a certain time frame, no matter what's going on in the market. Typically, it's, it's each paycheck, so every two weeks or once a month, maybe once a quarter, somebody would send in their um, you know, $100, $250, or $500, whatever it might be. And that plan does pretty well because it automatically buys more shares when they're cheap. You know, if, if a stock is 10 bucks a share and you send in $100, you're going to get 10 shares of it. But if that goes up to $50, you send in your $100 again, you're only going to get two shares of it. So automatically, that ends up lowering your average cost uh, for each share that you own over whatever time frame you're doing it in. And that's the simplest thing to do because all you do is send the same amount of money out on a regular basis. But value averaging asks a simple question. 
during those times when that stock, this, this hypothetical stock we're looking at, goes up to $50 a share, is it really wise to just keep buying it? I mean, isn't it possible that that's gone up too much and it's going to settle back? So value cost averaging asks, when something rises too much, can't we do better by taking profit out of the investment? And when something drops dramatically, wouldn't we improve our performance by buying more of it than we did on a regular basis? And the answer to both of those questions is yes. And the way it works is you choose a time frame. Let's go with monthly or quarterly. My plan uses quarterly, the one I like best. And you choose a growth target. The one I use is 3% per quarter. Okay, 3% per quarter turns into 12.6% per year, which is 20% more than the long-term average annual return of the S&P 500. Okay, now many academic studies and and real-world studies have have shown that that's just about the sweet spot of risk and reward. If If you try to beat the market by much more than 20%, you start doing exotic things that can wreak exotic damage on your bottom line. You start, you start getting into leverage strategies and, uh, I don't know, options and, and just different, different ideas that could return much, much more, even a thousand percent more than the market. But you start doing stuff like that, you go down the road of Lehman Brothers. And so to keep it a, a reasonable outperformance with a reasonable amount of risk, outpacing the market by 20% is just about perfect. And 3% per quarter does that. It, it, it's not 1% per month, by the way. The math works out differently. So it is specifically 3% per quarter. And you're doing now, this with individual you do, stocks? You're doing it individual uh, stocks me? or with funds? How are you doing it? Yeah, the way I do it is with with an ETF. I like the really low-cost, freely traded ETFs. A lot of these ones, the, the, the big index ETFs, like the the ones that target the Russell 2000 or the S&P 500 or the Wilshire, some of these have, have cost, um, I want to say the cost ratios of less than 0.2%. I mean, they're just really cheap to hold. And a lot of them are, are free to trade at the big brokerages like, like Vanguard and Fidelity and TD Ameritrade. So it's a very, very low-cost plan. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Jordan. The reason I prefer index ETFs is that they always recover. I mean, you're never going to have the S&P 500 go to zero or the mid-cap 400 go to zero and or the Russell 2000. I mean, 2,000 small company stocks are not all going to go to zero at the same time. And what they're going to do is get a lot cheaper in times like the financial crisis, but they always come back. And that's why in a plan that, that – issues buy and sell signals, we, we can have confidence that even though we're buying in this time of fear or this time when everybody's saying the market's not going to recover, whatever it is, we can have confidence to follow the plan because index ETFs always come back. We can't, we can't say that with an individual stock. I mean, it, certainly the financial crisis showed us that. Look what happened to these household name stocks and companies that, that really went bankrupt and were only some of them saved by the government and others really did disappear. So we can't have that confidence with an individual stock, no matter how blue chip it is, but with the indexes, we can. And just one last point on that. I, I mean, if, if an index ever does go to zero, which in theory could happen, if it ever does happen, then we've got a lot more to worry about than the value of our, of our portfolios. So basically so the way it works back is to- you're putting in a regular dollar amount, and when the price of it goes down by a certain amount, you put in more, 
and when the price goes up, you sell some and go to cash to some extent. Is that basically what you're saying with this uh, index Close. ETF? Yeah, there's actually not a set amount of money because it'll depend on the fluctuation. But let's say the beginning of this month, um, you, you move half your capital in, into this plan. You, you move half of it into the, an index ETF that you choose. Then, in the beginning of April, so that's the, the, the end of the first quarter, so end of March, beginning of April, you look at it and you say, so let's say it was $100 a share when you bought it. Well, it should be up to $103 a share, right, plus 3% at the end of this quarter. If we get to the end of the quarter, you check your plan, and it's only, it's, it's only at 102 then you, you see that your portfolio is not up to where it's supposed to be, so you use your, your sidecar cash account, or the money that's still in cash, and you buy the the investment level the, the portfolio balance in that investment up to the balance it would be if it had grown three percent okay and then a quarter later let's say now it, it's it's up to 110 which is well outpacing the three percent we needed to make in Q2 then you sell that excess profit down to that three percent level that would have happened if, if it had achieved exactly 3%, and you put that cash that you just taken off the table into your, your cash account. So in extreme times like like the fourth quarter of 2008 or first quarter of 2009, it's possible that you'll run out of cash because it's telling you to buy so much more to catch up to your growth target. But they're rare. Those times are rare, and when they happen, at least you can see what the plan is saying and say, well, I don't have any more cash, but at least I know I should just hold on to what I have until I eventually get a sell signal. That's how it works. And so you just make a move once a quarter at the end of the quarter? That's the way it works? Yes. Yes. In my favorite version of this plan, it's once a quarter. So only four times a year, and each of those trades can be free at most of the brokerages with these ETFs I'm talking about. And when you're, the, the part that you're holding over a long period is super cheap with, uh, you know, uh, cost ratio, expense ratio on the ETFs below 0.2%. So, so you're saying uh, that you have to kind of hold your nose emotionally because if it's just gone down, you're buying more. If it's just gone up and you want to put more into it because it's doing so well, you sell it. So emotionally, you just have to kind of go in reverse and do what you don't feel right doing. Is that what you're saying emotionally? Yeah, and I would say if if here's what I suggest. Most people doubt this. First of all, they say, "No, nah, it couldn't be that simple. It couldn't be that simple. This entire industry wouldn't exist if, if it was that simple." Well, it is that simple. So I just tell people: take take part of your portfolio. Take twenty percent. Take twenty percent of your portfolio and run it this way. If you're like most people that have, have gone that route, after about a year or two years, you're going to notice that that twenty percent is now forty percent, and it's kind of self-manage its way to become a larger percent of your portfolio, and you'll probably find yourself gradually moving more of your capital over to this way of managing it, because it's just so easy. And it's I would say once you come to trust it with real money, go ahead and try it with your real money. You won't, you won't go wrong. You won't shoot yourself in the head with this plan. And after you've come to see how beautifully it works, if you trust it, just stop paying attention to the financial news. Really, the only thing you need to look at at the end of each quarter is just the price. Am I above my 3% growth target or not? That's it. Run a simple calculation on a calculator and make the buy or sell, and don't even care what the financial media is talking about. Honestly, it doesn't matter whether it's Europe or Japan's next crisis or an oil situation. It doesn't matter. I mean, history has shown that you, you buy the weakness and you sell the strength and you don't care why we're getting the weakness or the strength. Now, you also have a strategy of the Dow dividend strategy uh, to find bargains, looking at the dividend yield of stats. 
Now, there is the famous dogs of the Dow strategy where you buy the 10 highest yielding stocks, the Dow, January 1st of each year. Those tend to outperform the whole Dow. Is that what you're talking about or is there something else that you're talking about as far as the Dow dividend strategy? I've always liked the Dow dividend strategy, the dogs of the Dow, um, and I and I look at the traditional one you just described, the the ten highest yielders each year. But there are some that have, have worked um, a, a little bit better. I think the the five the five lowest price of the ten highest yielders, which is sometimes called the small dogs of the Dow strategy, has actually been a little bit better and is easier to manage. So I've I've, I've presented the Dow dividend strategy since the first edition of the book, and I still think they're great, and I, I think. They're, it's easy to see why they're great. I mean, they're 30 of the best companies in the world. They, they almost all of them pay dividends, and so you are getting a dividend stream while you hold them. If the dividend yield is high, that's a hint that the stock price is low. So it, it's really just a, a common-sense value tip. You're, you're limiting yourself to these 30 big companies. You're choosing the, the 10, or in this case, the 5, that are, that are probably the best bargain according to what's happened in history. And you're holding them for a reasonable time period and then rebalancing. So it makes sense, and I've always had that strategy in the book, and I, I keep it there. But... I've just, over the years since the first edition, found found other plans that, that work better, like the one I talked about just now. But I think most people don't manage all of their money with a single plan because they kind of come in and out of favor. So I love keeping the dogs of the Dow in there because it's just such a such a standby, and, and a lot of people still like it. Even though, again, emotionally, it's going to be hard. I mean, for example, at the end of 2012, you would be buying stocks like Hewlett-Packard or the ones that you know did the absolute worst, lost you a huge amount of money in 2012 just because it's in the Dow and it was the worst performer. So, so again, it's an emotionally difficult thing to do, although financially it tends to work out. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, so many of the right moves in the stock market are emotionally difficult to do. And, and it's not just on the buys. I mean, it's hard on the sells, too. How, how many people were eager to dump at Apple at $700 a share last September, you know? I mean, you, you couldn't find a, a greater percentage of bullish calls on the stock that month, you know? But even a company that's done as well as Apple, that's as widely loved as Apple, can go down. And that's what we found out. I mean, under $500 a share this week, you know? And so emotionally, plans that say, hey, you know what, this has gone pretty far pretty fast, and, and yes, it's Apple, and yes, it's wonderful, but the laws of the market still apply, and it might be wise to take some money out of this now, if not all. And and that's why I just, I realized in my own my own time managing money that, that emotions are the hardest part of this, and none of us really can get it right. So that's why I focus on these these just these mechanical signals to help us get our arms around these emotions. And after you've, after you've used them for a while, you you can't believe that you were as emotional as you were for as long as you were because you realize that, you know what, these measuring sticks have been there all along, and if I just looked at prices and spent less time listening to emotional talk, I sure would have done a lot better over the years. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman with the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jason Kelly. Uh, he's the author of the latest edition of the, ne the Neatest Little Guide to Stock Market Investing. We'll be back after this. Stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com. Tune in for What About Wealth every week. 
to learn the vital answers to your questions about creating wealth, investing it, donating it, and protecting it. Your hosts are Rich Bloomfield and Rick Durfee, who explain the principles that govern wealth in terms you can understand. Building and preserving positive wealth requires correct action, but few people know how wealth really works. Listen every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and find the answers you need about wealth. Do you, like most Americans, spend the majority of your life at work? Are you making it the joy that it deserves to be, or are you feeling drained and unfocused? Tune in to A Great Place to Work with hosts Kurt Kaufman and Dr. Kathy Sorensen. Your hosts have more than 30 years of experience in workplace consulting and are ready to bring you the secrets and success stories of businesses who are making their business a great place to work. Listen every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and enjoy a better workplace and a better life. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jason Kelly. Uh, He's the author of The Neatest Little Guide to Stock Market Investing. Uh, He just came out with the fifth edition in 2013. Welcome back to the show, Jason. Thank you, Jordan. If people want to find out more about the book, is there a website related to it, or how can they find out more about it? Yeah, sure. All of my information is at my website, jasonkelly.com. There's a good rundown of the book there. And it's it's everywhere books are sold, too, so there's a good Amazon page on it. And, uh, but the, I guess ground zero is always jasonkelly.com for my material. Now, you have a chapter where you go through some of the most famous investors uh, out there and some of the wisdom that they've given. We obviously don't have time to go through all of them. Let's just go briefly through some of them. Uh, you've got Warren Buffett. What can the average person lose, learn from what Warren Buffett uh, espouses? I think the best, the best takeaway from, from Warren Buffett is that we need to, to not pigeonhole ourselves as traditional growth or value investors. A lot of times people seem to go down one road or the other and say, I'm a value investor. I only buy cheap stocks. I look for cheap, cheap, cheap. And, and, and that's because that's how I see the world. I pay as little as I can for a dollar of earnings and because I believe that eventually that's going to pay off when things recover. And then another group says, nah, forget that. I don't have time for that. That's too old and crusty. I'm a growth investor. I'm looking for the next tech stock, the next bio stock, the next growing crazily quarter to quarter kind of stock. That's what I do because that's where the big profits lie. All of us tend to think one way or the other, but what Warren Buffett's career shows clearly is that we need to keep a flexible mind as to to which kind of company is going to be the best investment. Because here's an investor who bought, you know, bought stocks at two dollars a share. You know, I mean, you know, Chrysler at two dollars a share, and you, you just don't get that kind of that kind of. Uh, value stock buy from somebody who's focused on growth. And yet, Warren Buffett turns around and buys Coca-Cola after it's gone up many, many fold over over more than a decade that he was watching it. So clearly had run away and no value investor would have paid what he paid for it at that time. And so what I look at in the book is is the way Warren Buffett looks at stocks. How is he analyzing stocks that, that 
enables them to be flexible enough to buy something that's gone from, you know, eighty dollars a share to two dollars a share, and something else that's gone the other way, from eight dollars a share up to sixty dollars a share. And uh, since he's made more money in the market than just about anybody, it's it's worth seeing that that flexibility does pay off, and that, that we need to have some of that in the way we look at stocks too. Then you have a little chapter on uh, Peter Lynch, uh, the famous Fidelity uh, Magellan Fund Manager. What can the average person investor learn from him? What I love about Peter Lynch is how he, he gives people the green light to buy the things they know about. There's this tendency, uh, probably among all of us, to think that the grass is greener the more complicated we get. So if I work in the in the, the automobile industry, what am I buying? Tech stocks. I spend all my time reading about Silicon Valley. And if I work in Silicon Valley, what do I spend my time reading about? Commodities, gold and, and, and oil, and trying, because I figure that must be where the profits lie, not where I go to work every day. What Peter Lynch pointed out is that our knowledge from our lives is just as legitimate a, a, a body of investment information as anything that a professional analyst is gathering. I mean, if you do work in the automobile industry, you probably know more about parts suppliers and, and, and designers and materials that are going to be used than, than any automobile industry analyst, or at least as much. And so it makes sense for you to use that material in your own portfolio, that, that body of knowledge that you have. That don't, don't think that somebody else's body of knowledge is going to be better because you know what every every sector of the market has profit potential everyone no matter how old the industry is and that's another thing peter lynch points out by the way sometimes the best places to invest are low growth or no growth industries like like uh, like waste management or the, he, he cited a funeral business that looked like i mean who the heck wants to graduate from business school and open a funeral parlor right <laughs> but those kinds of businesses can really churn out profits and and, and so that that flexibility to, to go where Wherever the profits are, not just what is sexy and cool at the moment, is a good tip from Peter Lynch. And the other one really is buy what you know. If you find yourself going to the same restaurants, buying the same foods in the grocery store, uh, maybe preferring the same clothing shops at the mall, those are real investment tips. Um, actually, I'll give you a, a great practical example. I've received a bunch of real-life tips from my family, who are, are shoppers, much more than I am. So I was tipped off the Crocs. We ended up making a lot of money on Crocs, even though it was a very volatile stock. And there was a chance to lose money in it. But you know what? That, that stock, after the financial crisis... And, and Crocs was really hit with a double whammy, by the way. It got hit by the, the, the Lehman shock, so it went down to a dollar a share. A dollar a share. But it happened back-to-back -back with people saying that Crocs had no future because China was going to make knockoffs that were going to be just as good and cost, you know, half as much. So, so Crocs was just making a commodity shoe. So it was hit with both of those, and it went down to $1 a share. But everybody that I knew in Colorado, which is where I'm from, was still wearing them, and they were saying specifically, the consumers that I knew were saying, no, nah, the original Crocs, the genuine Crocs, feel totally different than those Chinese knockoffs. There's a different material they're using, and it, it really matters. And that stock went from $1 to $20, you know, a 1,900% rebound. And that was a, just a great real-life example of, of using what you know, you know, the people you know who are wearing Crocs telling you these feel different than the Chinese knockoffs. Um, 
Here's another great example of that. Right now, right now, people can act on this tip right now. When I was home for Christmas in Colorado again, I was shopping, and my mother gave me a whole stack of coupons from Kohl's, K-O-H-L-S, Kohl's, the department store, and she said, here's a company that's doing everything right. I've got a Kohl's card that gives me points. I get Kohl's cash from them in the mail. They have these coupons all the time. You can do really well, Jason. You ought to check it out. And so I did some of my Christmas shopping at Kohl's, and I loved it. So there was a real-life tip. My mother said it was a good place to go. Other family members said it was a good place to go. I went there. It was the best of the big stores that I went to. And my first thought when I was saving so much money was, how awful are the margins at this place? They must be losing money on every sale is what it seemed like. So I you know, jumped on the fundamental research as soon as I got back and saw that, no, their margins are improving. So they're keeping consumers happy while improving their bottom line, which is a great combo. And guess what, Jordan? That stock was trading at its low, the low part of its range right then when I was researching. And it's, it's even right now under $43 a share, I think. And, and this is a real tip. I think someone should look closely at Kohl's. The symbol is KSS. And this is a stock that I found just last month by doing real shopping in Colorado for Christmas and, and then being impressed with it and checking out some of the basic measurements, which I also cover in the book, so we know how to evaluate a stock to see if it's any good. And then I went ahead and bought it, put it out to my newsletter subscribers, and we picked it up at $42 a share. And I think your listeners will have a chance to get a good deal on Kohl's, too, if they want. So there's, there's a real-life application of Peter Lynch's idea that we should buy what we know. Tell people a little bit about your newsletter and uh, how can they get it or how often is it? Tell them a little bit about what's in your newsletter. You bet. It comes out every Sunday morning. So you have it with your coffee on Sunday. And it's a look back at what happened during the week, cuts out all the fluff and all the noise. And I look with usually a skeptical eye on what's going on in Washington and the markets. And I run a three-tier portfolio. The first tier is that value cost averaging plan I told you about. The second tier uh, leverages and times the mid-cap index. And then the third tier is just wide open stocks. Like we're just talking about Kohl's right now. So that's where I do dividend stocks, uh, capital appreciation stocks, and just my own ideas on individual buys. So uh, in the newsletter, I combine these automated plans that, that give the quarterly sell and buy signals with, with my ideas on stocks that are undervalued or, or somehow offering a, a good reason to own them. And, yeah, it comes out every Sunday morning. The, the details on it are also at jasonkelly.com. And we'd love to have new people come on board. So join us. We have a really good, lively discussion board on the website. And we've done really well. Great. Another of the masters you talk about is Bill Miller, who was the longtime uh, fund manager at Leg Mason's uh, biggest fund. And he beat the market for year after year until he didn't. What, what can people right. learn from Bill Miller's style? Bill Miller has been... He's been a favorite of mine for a long time just because uh, I was talking to him before the, his winning streak ended. He you know, beat the S&P 500 every single year for 15 years. And he was just lauded in the media, talked about how, how great he was and how he could never lose and you can't go wrong betting on Bill Miller. And then he just ran right into the teeth of the financial crisis. And you know what? He spoke honestly to me about everything that went right and went wrong. And because of that, I'll always respect Bill Miller. He didn't run away from it or justify what had gone wrong. And what I think readers can learn from Bill is that times change. I mean, conditions change. What worked for a long time can stop working, and we need to stay nimble. And, and that's what, what Bill realized. He, and he took a step back, his whole team, he and his team at Leg Mason took a step back and said, 
why aren't we doing as well as we did for so long? Why aren't we on the covers of magazines anymore? What's gone wrong here? And they came up with a plan that addressed all of their weaknesses. They realized sometimes when our ideas are wrong, we're waiting around for the price action to tell us we're wrong, and we could do a lot better if we just allowed a time stop. That's what he called it. This is a concept I learned from Bill um, a year ago, is the idea of a time stop instead of a price stop. Sometimes, you know, we buy a stock and we think, okay, this is going to turn around for the following reasons. Maybe maybe Dell, for example. We think Dell is going to become not just a commodity PC box maker. They're going to become a true enterprise end-to-end solution provider. Okay, fine. We buy it for that. And then we wait, and the stock languishes, drops a little, rises a little. doesn't really go anywhere. Not paying a dividend, not not doing anything. Recently started paying a dividend, but for a long time not doing anything right. Well, Miller said one thing they learned by looking at their historical performance was that they should only give their ideas a couple years to work. It's not just based on, on price. It's also based on time. If this idea hasn't worked in a year or two, maybe three, then we go ahead and sell it and move on. I thought that was a great idea, and it just showed flexibility of mind to realize we hold our bad ideas too long, and the prices haven't told us to get out. They didn't drop precipitously so that we were we were stopped out price-wise, um, but they just haven't worked. So we have this capital parked in these dead ideas for way too long, and we can't do that anymore. So they instituted this idea of a time stop, which I thought was really neat. And uh, another quick idea from Bill that I thought was very helpful is they took the 10 S&P 500 sectors they hired a firm to go back through the history and figure out which metrics, that is, which, which ways of measuring stocks, whether it's P.E. or price to sales or um, enterprise value, whatever it might be, what are the measurements that best identify when this specific sector is undervalued? And then they divide up that valuation into 10 different zones. So there's a bottom 10% valuation at the top and so on. And they have a wall map. I'm sure it's a screen by now. They have a screen of all 10 sectors, and, and they light up whenever one of the sectors gets into its lowest 10% valuation band based on that measurement or set of measurements that best identifies when that, that sector is undervalued. I thought that was a really great way to make sure. Oh, and then, and then he said we, we automatically, it's built into our management formula, we automatically overweight that sector at that time. So, uh, you know, even if we don't like specifically what, what they did at Leg Nation and we think we have a better idea, I just thought that, that someone as prominent as Bill radically revamping his strategy in light of a period of poor performance shows what's really necessary to make it in this business. And by the way, even on this side of that poor performance period, Bill has still outpaced the market by 1% annually over his lifetime. So he's still a very, a very good person to watch and learn from. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jason Kelly. Uh, his new book is called The Meatest Little Guide to Stock Market Investing. And we'll be back after this. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful. 
that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for Be More, Achieve More, Inspiration for the Entrepreneurial Mind with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. These people are making a difference and will help give you the motivation and insight to achieve more. Be More, Achieve More can be heard live Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. How do you feel about the future? Tune in each week for Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. You can be a great leader by learning from the inspiring stories of amazing visionaries who are shaping our future. Everyone deserves to create their own vision, and Kate and her guests will share the tools that you need to make it happen. Make a weekly visit to the Voice America Business Channel for Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Be inspired. Become inspiring. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jason Kelly. Uh, he's the author of a new book called The Neatest Little Guide to stock market investing. Welcome back to the show, Jason. It's a pleasure, Jordan. You have a whole section on picking a broker, a discount broker. Um, there's been a lot of consolidation in that business. Uh, what are some things people should look for where they figure out where they should put their money? These days it's become pretty simple to research because almost every broker has a reasonable price now. Nobody's, nobody's charging through the nose for trades anymore. And what I look at is is how easy it will be to manage the the portfolio style I want to manage. For example, if if you want to trade ETFs, like we were talking earlier about these low-cost ETFs that are freely tradable at some brokers, well, if you're going to do that plan, make sure you go with a broker that does offer the ETFs you want to buy and sell with no no brokerage fee at all. Um, and that's, a, that's a good thing to check right there. After that, these days, I think what sets one broker apart from another is the breadth of their research offerings. Some of them, like, like um, TD Ameritrade, for example, will offer fantastic premium resources that you, you can pay hundreds of dollars per, per month or, or quarter on your own that you can get for free just by opening the brokerage account. And, of course, there's an incentive for them to do that because the more you know about the market, the, the more you'll trade, and they make their money off, off your trading activity. But I mean, that, that makes sense. That, that's the business they're in. And so when they provide you with tools that can really help your, your performance, then I think that helps them to stand apart. And one, ones that I like in that category are uh, TD Ameritrade and Fidelity have some really good research, too. But, there, you know, there are honestly quite a few. I don't, I don't want to point people just to those. I mean, Scott Trade's really good. First Trade's got some good stuff out there, too. And if you if you just look through that lens, you know, I would pretty much ignore trading price because they're all about the same these days. The the improvement really happens in the research offerings and whether they offer the investments you want at, at a free price, which is great to get with those ETFs I mentioned. And then you have a section on the internet. There's so much on the internet today. How, how should you allocate your time to go to the, the sites that are going to be most helpful to you? 
Yeah, I I list the ones that, that I like best um, because I, I want it to be a short list, frankly. I, I think the Internet is a great place to enter analysis paralysis where you just pile up so much information, pro and con, in every possible way on every single investment you've ever had that you end up just sitting there like a blob of jelly never doing anything or totally petrified whichever way you go, right? Because you can think of the 50 reasons why you're making the wrong move. And, uh, boy, it's, it's just really tricky with the Internet. Some sites that I have found that have been really helpful, Seeking Alpha offers a really huge offering of, of, of input from all kinds of investors, from, from amateur investors all the way up to pros. And they even have a pro service now where you can pay to just get the, the very best of the articles that they, they curate. And I like that site a lot. I've, I've written for that site. Just a disclaimer, I, I have articles on that site as well. So uh, a lot of people do. The nice thing about it is there's a very rich discussion forum. So if, if you are thinking of buying uh, Kohl's, for example, I talked earlier about Kohl's and how I believe it's a good bargain in the low 40s here. Uh, you'll want to check that out on your own, not just take my word for it. And if you go to Seeking Alpha and put in that symbol, you can see all kinds of information on it there that you don't necessarily get at bigger sites like Yahoo Finance. A lot of the bigger sites will show just headlines from the, the mainstream financial media, but sites like Seeking Alpha, which aggregate real investor input in, in a very professional format, not in a way that people are, uh, you know, the typical Internet discussion board kind of thing where they're meaningless statements, that doesn't really survive long at Seeking Alpha because, first of all, people will flag it, the site will remove it, and, and very quickly the intelligence bubbles to the top there. So, of course, it's not foolproof, but I've just found Seeking Alpha to be a very good collection of of transcripts, news, investor input of, of all different strata of the investment um, skill spectrum, I guess. And I, I find that side to be very helpful. So I would suggest that people do look at Seeking Alpha and on top of whatever mainstream sites they're using. And then I would also suggest, though, to just limit yourself. I would keep a notepad. I like a real notepad, paper, and pen because it's not going to get too big for me to manage, and I can just jot down a few key ideas. And I think it's very helpful to actually limit oneself to the time amount researching, a time spent researching, I should say. That really helps how, a lot. Deadlines focus people, you know, and I think that helps a lot online. It's like I'm not going to spend more than one hour researching this idea online. I'm going to jot down the keynotes and I'm going to mold them offline. I, I recommend that approach. How about newsletters? So you have a section on newsletters. Again, is there you recommend people just get one newsletter and follow it, or have several? Because if they get too many, they'll start getting into analysis paralysis. What are some of your favorite newsletters that people should follow? Yeah, you're right about that. You do want to limit those too. Um, I, you know, I think the very one of the very best investment newsletters out there is probably the Dick Davis Digest, uh, just because it collects ideas from, from many different newsletters, and then the editors at Dick Davis will, will um, condense them down to a small, manageable set of information from that letter. And then it will always tell you the editor's name, how to reach the letter, phone number, and so on. And another disclaimer, I, I'm in that digest, too. So my, my newsletter, the Kelly Letter, appears in that digest. But and I, I'm a reader of it, not just a contributor, I read it too because it's a great way to get every other week a list of sometimes 50 ideas from different different newsletters of all different disciplines. I think that's a great 
overview publication that gives you ideas to then research further. And I do emphasize that. These are just just ideas that spark, and then you've got to go check them out on your own. But it's a reasonable price, and it, it's, it's almost like subscribing to the whole newsletter universe if, if you trust the judgment of the editors of Dick Davis, and, and I do. They're very good. Chloe Lutz is in charge of that, and she's in touch with me all the time. They do a bang-up job with, with that publication. We've talked a lot about stocks. Uh, what role should bonds play in a portfolio today, with, particularly with interest rates as low as they are today? Bonds should play no part in the portfolio today. Uh, rates are so awful now that uh, James Grant at Grant's Interest Rate Observer, which is actually my, my single favorite non-digest newsletter, but it's hard to recommend since it's a thousand bucks a year. But it, it's great. Anyway, James Grant at Grant's Interest Rate Observer said, you, you've heard of, of, of risk-free return? Well, bonds these days, especially government bonds, are return-free risk. That's all you're getting in that category. Because, you know, uh, the, the yields are just so incredibly low, which makes the prices so high that you're not getting paid much income to hold on to something that's probably going to be going down in price pretty soon anyway. So, um, frankly, Jordan, I just say skip the whole bond category these days. Now, you're in Japan, where they've had deflation for 20 years or so. They're trying to stimulate inflation a little bit now. But uh, right. in a deflationary environment, bonds is the place to be. It's, a, it's kind of strange you're saying that when, in the land of deflation there. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose it is. But, um, you know, it's so complicated. I'm trying to figure out where to begin with Japan. It's been a bear market for so long, and it's been deflationary for so long. And now they don't want to say inflation, so they say reflation. But what that's going to do, because of the stimulus they're putting out, is weaken the yen. So even here, where exactly what you say, okay, things are things are going to, um, I, I should hold on to a bond, you know, in, in this type of environment. The problem is. Analysts here think actually stocks are the place to be because there's so many more variables involved that as the yen weakens and these, the, this export economy starts repatriating profits from overseas, it's going to inflate the earnings reports of these companies, which is going to finally send the stock prices up. So I'm just pointing out that there are so many moving parts in these puzzles that, yeah, you're right, you're right. This, this seems like the perfect place to own a bond, but even here, it looks like the better way to go is to own stocks, and that's why we're seeing people re allocate as, as this new administration takes over and starts stimulating and, and weakening the yen. So are you pretty optimistic about Japanese stocks right now? I am, actually, yeah. Um, I Ever since uh, Abe, Shinzo Abe is the one who won the election, and he has said all along that he's going to go for broke. They're going to throw the kitchen sink at this thing. They don't care what happens at the end. In fact, they want it to weaken terribly against major currencies, and they're going to get inflation going, reflation, excuse me, going in this economy. So I think it's going to finally light a fire under stocks. And the, the investment I'm looking at, if you want to finer point on this. A couple that I like. I really like Canon, the maker of, of photocopiers and, and photography equipment. And I would wait for the low 30s. It shot up to the high 30s when people got excited about this. And uh, I also recommend just buying the index itself, the Japanese stock index. And the, the ETF I recommend for that is called Wisdom Tree Japan Hedged Equity. Do you know the symbol for that one? So Wisdom Tree Japan Hedge Equity is DXJ, and it's it's in the high 30s now. I, I would wait to get it in the low 30s because I think we'll settle back a little bit when things don't go quite as smoothly as they thought. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Jason Kelly. 
Uh, you can find out more about him and his book, The Neatest Little Guide to Stock Market Investing, in his newsletter at jasonkellykelly.com. Uh, so thanks so much for being on the Money Answer Show, Jason. It's been great, Jordan. Thank you. Thanks again. And we'll be back next week with another edition of the Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.